I'm Twyla Dang, filling in for Angela Davis. I say the name George Floyd, and people across the world will know who that is and what he means. A last-minute appeal at the New South Wales Court of Appeal allowed a rally in Sydney, where several thousand people marched chanting Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter! I'm here to show my support to the people of America that I'm here to show my regards to them and support to to them. Those are news clips from people from Australia, Iran, and Germany after George Floyd's death on May 25, 2020. People were galvanized to take action after former police officer Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd as other officers let it happen. Today marks the third anniversary of his death. And today we're talking about why people from all over the world have come to the George Floyd Global Memorial to grieve, heal, and resist. The memorial preserves the 5,000 pieces of art, protest signs, and gifts people left at the George Floyd Square and runs events around his anniversary. This conversation was recorded last week. My guests in studio are Janelle Austin, the executive director and co-founder of the George Floyd Global Memorial, and she is the founder of Racial Agency Initiative. Good morning, Janelle. Good morning. Angela Harrelson is the aunt of George Floyd and the co-chair of the George Floyd Global Memorial. Last year, she released her book, Lift Your Voice, How My Nephew George Floyd's Murder Changed the World. She's a mental health ICU nurse, and she served in the military. Good morning, Angela. Good morning. And joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina, is Paris Stevens. She is the cousin of George Floyd and co-chair of the George Floyd Global Memorial. She has also worked in the mortgage industry for more than a decade. Good morning, Paris. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Angela, it's been three years since you lost your nephew. I am so sorry for your loss. What comes up for you around this time? Hmm. There's so many things that comes up. You know, I start thinking about what happened three years ago. But, um, you know, it's not as painful as it used to be. You know, um, I, I, I still remember the pain. I remember the struggles. But I tell you, um, the love and support that I often say from the community, especially from 38 in Chicago, and from my family has given me a lot of strength to keep going through this. And um, and um, having the rising remember that's coming up, it gives us something to look forward to. And it's hope. And, and you can just feel the positive energy and the vibe that comes around. You know, I look forward to that. I look forward to that. Indeed. Uh, Paris? George Floyd, or Perry, as I know your family calls him, uh, was your cousin. What comes up for you around this time? Around this time, it is extremely emotional. Um, Our family has suffered so much loss just around Memorial Weekend. Um, A lot of people know that Perry's mother um, is no longer with us, but... She passed away a year, um, really, to the date before Perry died, and my dad as well. And it's just, his death, it still um, feels like yesterday. And Rise and Remember um, 
it helps. We can all come together and heal together and remember, we remember all the stolen lives and remember George Floyd as well. And oh, I get anxious, you know, every anniversary of um, how am I going to feel this year? Um, but the community, the support is just, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And when I come there, I feel a commonality with everyone that's there because everyone has suffered um, some sort of loss. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just thankful that we've had so much support um, for the past three years. I think that's really gracious of you um, to center not only your loss, but understanding that other people have had loss too. Um, for everyone, what comes up for you when you hear what we played, those clips? There were cities around the world chanting his name and demanding racial justice. It's so overwhelming sometimes for me because we don't know the, a lot of these people. They speak a language, most of the, most of the languages I can't even, can't even speak around the world because this went global. And it's just overwhelming and amazing to see that people from a different cultures around the world, they speak in different languages. They have their own health problems, disabilities, deaf, hard of hearing, but they came to support a movement, to support our family, to support a community. And they just came together. And that is so powerful. That is so overwhelming. And it just touches my heart. I don't want to cry, but you take all the space you need. Because I think about how, like, like Janelle, she reached out to me. I did not know her. She did, you know, she knew of me, but I knew nothing of her. And today, after three years, we literally created something out of the basement. And, and I want to. I want to thank you for having a greater vision that I could have at that time when I was trying to get through something. I just want you to know that. Let's let's talk about that a little bit, um, because I'm sure at after the, in the immediate aftermath of his death. There was you were probably inundated with requests and people wanting to talk to you and people wanting to, um, you know, ask for things uh, while you were trying to wrap your head around his loss and the impact of his loss. What one, um, Janelle? What made you decide or feel drawn to or compelled to take more action than? sort of just watching it happen and trying to be supportive on the side? What made you think that I need to do something or start something around this? For me, this fight for racial justice has been a fight that I've been a part of for decades. And when George Floyd was lynched, it was three blocks away from my family home. And initially, I wasn't going to. And my family reached out to me because at the time I was actually in Austin, Texas. And they said, Janelle, will you come home? Because this is what you do. This is, this is your work. This is your lane. I have six brothers and sisters and we all have our lanes. And they said, this is your lane. Will you come home? And I initially said no, because 
with my background in theology and working with different churches and with my background in activism, I told them, uh, pastors and community organizers are a lot alike in that they are extremely territorial and I did not want to get myself in that mix. And they insisted, they said, please come home. Now at the time, my um, it had been about a year since my father had passed from cancer, and I knew that part of it was the trauma of the city being on fire. My father had recently passed. My mother wanted to have a head count on all of her children <laughs> to mm-hmm. say, Absolutely. where are you? So I came home with the intent to be here maybe about a week or two weeks um, I was in that protest. I came home on May 29th, so Friday, May 29th. And I was in the protest on the 35W Bridge when the truck was driving through. And I remember looking up and seeing a truck coming at us and everyone started running. It was like a wave because each person in front recognized the ch- the, the truck first. Mm-hmm. And that day was so so traumatic that mm-hmm. I said to myself, I have to protest in a different way. I, excuse me. I have to protest in a way that will also bring healing and wellness and life. And because I'm a morning person, I decided to do that through the memorial. I said every morning I'd wake up at 6 a.m. and care for the memorial as my form of protest. And uh, I chose to live in the balance of preservation and protest. And it wasn't until um, like mid-July, because um, people kept asking, well, what does the family want? What does the family want? What are we going to do with all these offerings? I mean, we had email change with the, like, the African-American Museum, different uh, academic institutions, different um, community organizers and the uh, neighborhood organizations, people trying to figure out what are we going to do with all of these offerings. And some people wanted to throw them in the garbage. They had brought dumpsters and threw them in the garbage. And we went dumpster diving for them because as community caretakers, we had um, created a principle among ourselves to say that everything was somebody's offering, therefore nothing is thrown away, and that the people are more sacred than the memorial. And so we were keeping everything until we could figure out what the family wanted, and no one knew the family because most of them lived out of town. So by mid-July, um, it, there was so much pressure on reopening the streets that um, I decided to do my own research to figure out who the family was. And so I just read every news article I could to figure out who was legitimate family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, because every uh, self-deemed cousin in the world was like popping up in the neighborhood <laughs> saying, I'm a cousin, I'm a cousin. And so um, <laughs> I, saw, I saw an article um, about Miss Angela and then I saw an article about some of his siblings. And so I reached out to everyone that I could via the context through the article. And Miss um, Angela, I found her on Facebook. And we weren't Facebook friends. And so <laughs> I said, well, you know what? Let me send a message and see if this works. And she read the message and replied. Um, and I'm so grateful. And I didn't, I, at that time, I still hadn't decided if I was going to go back to Texas or stay in Minnesota. I think for me, it it opened up a new imagination of how I could 
serve in the world of uh, racial justice and the pursuit of racial justice. I had never, ever been a part of the industry of cultural heritage preservation. <laughs> I had no intentions of being a part of this industry, but uh, it opened a door for us to have a voice to actually begin to push the industry towards justice. I, I like to say that protest exists to disrupt business as usual, to signal that there is something wrong that needs to be made right. Um, and I define protest that way because it creates an invitation for anybody to be disruptive um, within their own industry, within their own field. And it doesn't always look like a march because not everybody can go out on a march or make a protest sign or afford to leave work in the middle of the day. But everybody can pay attention to the platforms and the surroundings that they have to say, how can I make life better for others? How can I lean in to justice and equity? Uh, what is wrong that can be made right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that being in this industry now allows us opportunities to speak to people. The industry is predominantly white. Um, and even with, I learned that with black art conservators, there's less than 20 in the entire nation. Uh, the closest black art conservators to us are in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And it created an opportunity for us to not just preserve the memorial, but how do we transform an entire industry by allowing and introducing cultural heritage preservations to more black and brown people so that we so that we can tell our own stories and tell them truthfully and thereby combat racism, which has historically always erased our stories. Um, and so it it was a new opportunity. And um, I'm I'm excited to be here continuing to explore with Miss Angela, Miss Paris um, by my side to say, you know what, we can continue to bring racial justice through the preservation of our stories of resistance uh, to injustice. That's very, very powerful. Mm. We, we are a, a part of it, an ongoing part of, you know, a, not just a flashpoint in history, but an ongoing rewriting of what history will look like because of what happened and because of the response of everyday people to it. Um, I really do want to, like, hold some space for the fact that this is a huge responsibility for, for all of you. Um, but it comes at the expense of this person that you lost. What is, what is healing look like for you? How is the process of healing um, sort of taken shape for you? Um, that's, that's a, that was, that's a tough one, you know, because for family, we all knew Perry differently. So the healing process is going to be different, mm -hmm. um, you know, but but the pain is pretty much the same, but it's just as the way that you heal is differently. For me, it has, you know, for me going through this, I didn't, I don't, I wasn't even where I was grieving in the beginning because I was poured in so many different directions. I knew I could feel the pain, but I didn't know when I was grieving, because some, sometimes grieving can come out left side, right side, but it's a part of your grief. It's a part of your struggle, and you don't realize that. And so what I've learned is you can't put a start date on grief, and you definitely cannot put an end date on grief. 
So it's just something that I'm slowly working and learning, you know, and learning how to deal with it. Um, being in mental health for 30, almost 30 years, you know, um, learning, picking up little signs. Wait a minute, I think that might be me a little bit. <laughs> I need to slow down. So it's a constant for me is a constant learning and learning about myself. Because um, when you asked the earlier question, I wasn't, it couldn't imagine even doing this type of work. Before Perry was killed, I was looking at a hobby taking pilot lessons. <laughs> My family would laugh at that. No, I, said, I always wanted to learn how to fly. I said, I could do this a hobby. That's where my head was at the time. I wasn't thinking about further a nursing career. I was thinking about, you know what? I'm going to take pilot lessons and learn how to fly. That's where I was at until this happened. And I'm like, wow. So I didn't know that I could do this. So it definitely come. But God showed me that I had a greater purpose in life. You know, you get in this mood sometimes. You want to do this, go to school. You want to go this, get this type of job and stuff. And, you know, you get a little selfish of yourself about, okay, I'm going to be focused on this career, do this, I'm going to do this. But then something happens and you realize there's a much bigger world than what you're living in. And it gave me a greater purpose in life. It gave me, um, it let me know that I had skills that I could tap in that I didn't know was even there. They came out of me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Paris, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah. Um, each day for me, each day is a new day. Um, every day when I wake up, I think about um, how can I change someone's heart um, who might be indifferent to, to, to what's going on. Um, healing is a process. Mm -hmm. And I compare it to a wound that's, that's healing. Um, like with the wound, you have to provide you know, daily care and treatment. Um, and hopefully it heals to where there's no no aftermath of a scar. Um, but if it's aggravated, then it reopens and the healing process starts over. Um, so sometimes the wound may heal, but the scar will always, always remain. Um, and that's what I think about with, um, with George Floyd's death. Um, every day is different in how I feel. And when there are other deaths that occur, that starts a healing process over again. So the, the pain and suffering kind of never goes away, but each day it gets better. Now, I know recently in Minneapolis, um, the city and the department of the Minnesota Department of Human Rights have reached an agreement on new rules for police officers. Some of the changes are that police officers can't stop cars for minor infractions like burned out headlights. Um, and this comes after an investigation that found routine discrimination from Minneapolis police, especially against black residents, and also a lack of accountability for police misconduct. Um, all, for all of you, what, what are your reactions to finding out that 
these some of these incremental changes are starting to take place. When they did that investigation and they found out that it was validated that racism and discrimination did take place in there, that was not surprising to me. I don't really think that was a surprise to black and brown people. I, I really don't. But I am thankful that initiatives have started. There are some ways, to, there are far much greater ways for they can they can do better. But I'm just so thankful that it was exposed. These layers are beginning to be exposed. That's just one layer to this madness that has been taking place over 400 years that has been exposed. So I'm very thankful for that. I think that there is a value in the layers of investigations because you have the investigation on a state level. You also have the Department of Justice on the federal level who's investigating. And I think that gives a level of hope and possibility for um, a, a resemblance of justice through our legal system for people in other states and other communities who are uh, navigating the very same thing of what's possible in terms of a, a more local level investigation so they don't have to wait for the federal level. Um, however, as a community member who lives in the third precinct, I have to see it first before I truly believe that these changes are going to have a long-term systemic impact. I think the trauma that we have been under uh, with the third precinct, um, even before 2020, um, it's, it's deep trauma. You talked about healing earlier. I think that within the community, it's more than just healing from a public lynching, but it's also trying to figure out how do we heal from systemic oppression that has um, existed in our community for decades. And I think part of that healing is going to require seeing the results of the investigation, seeing the results of the consent decree actually playing out and, and through visible improvements. Um, and so on paper, it looks promising, but we have to see how they actually embody those changes. I think that's a fair point. Um, my colleague, Angela Davis, uh, spoke with both of you, and uh, I'm sorry, Angela, she spoke with you back in 2021 about your first time visiting George Floyd Square. I want to play a little bit of that clip. It was hard coming out here the first time. I was just trying to find the strength to visit it. But then when I came out here, it gave me a family that I can come out and be around. I don't know how to explain it. It, was, it became magical. Like I came, I see people, I know people, they know me by first name, I know them by their first name, seeing what they do, seeing them light the candles, seeing them hand out water, hand out food. It was like I'm seeing this place take a life of its own. Every time I come here, I never walk out the same. So, Angela, what is it like for you to visit George Floyd Square now? You know, um, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm one of them. You <laughs> I, are. I feel like I'm one of them. You know, because of, you know, the first time I was like I was scared. I mean, scared of the pain of seeing the you know seeing the memorial. You know, alone. 
you know, I've been there with my um, family, mm-hmm. but I didn't know many people. I think the first person that I that I got to know was Janelle because she had reached out to me. But now it's like I'm just one of just one of the one of the community, and that's a wonderful feeling, you know. I just I walk like I'm going to my next door neighbor house. I walk like I'm down south going to go visit my aunt here. I'm going to go see my nephew here. I'm going to go. It's, it's like I'm, I feel like I'm. It's like I'm, I'm going into this community that I've been a part of. Um, um, it feels like all my life, even though it's been like three years. But it's, I just feel like I'm just home. It's another home. It's another family. That's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Paris, what can you say about your first time visiting George Floyd Square and your relationship to it now? It's always been welcoming. Um, the first time actually seeing um, where Perry was mm-hmm. um, in the physical was very difficult, um, emotional. And, but I felt a calmness. I felt a calmness there. And, you know, I could relate to so many people. So I had conversations with community members and visitors. And still to this day, um, I still feel that same calmness and peace and welcoming feeling. Um, like um, Aunt Angela said, it's it's like another family, and it's a commonality because everyone has lost everyone has lost some someone, um, either through police violence or just something tragic. Um, so there's a commonality that everyone has. You come there for hope. You come there to grieve. Um, so, so people have all different types of reasons in coming there, but it's all a commonality. Everyone has something in common there. And I just feel, I feel at home there. Um, that makes me feel so much, I mean, as someone who lived here and experienced it as a, as a community member, but obviously not a family member, um, it, it warms my heart to know that you feel a sense of not just community or support, but that it does feel like um, a sense of home and purpose for you both. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play another clip um, from a national special that NPR News host Angela Davis did in 2021. Let's take a listen to that. So there was a neighbor who prophetically called this intersection the eighth wonder of the world last summer. And he even painted a whole thing and put it on his like fence and I have been getting emails from people across the country saying, can you add the name of my loved one to the streets? Can you add the name of this person who I have been saying their name for 20 years to the streets of Minneapolis? Now, part of me is like, Wait, no, don't, don't y'all got streets down there, too? <laughs> But then I realized, nah, something special happened here, though. Like everything that we have gone through as a community, everything that we have suffered through, all the trauma, it only made us stronger. 
and being able to create a space where people across the country come and pilgrim to practice racial justice or pilgrim to say, can I grieve here too? There's something special about George Floyd Square. That's that's a really powerful statement. I mean, Janelle, how do you react to that? Uh, they they That person phrased this as the eighth wonder of the world. I mean, that's quite a title. It is quite a title. And I think the intersection itself has proven that to be true because people continue to come from all over the world to visit. Uh, we have neighbors who hold space every day, 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. Uh, since June 15th of 2020 to continue to gather um, in protests, but in through community and being in community. And um, they'll say, we saw someone today who had their suitcase with them <laughs> from the airport and they said they were on a layover <laughs> and they came to visit to just lay eyes on the square before their next flight. Uh, the other day we met a gentleman from South Africa mm. and I asked him, well, what brought you to Minneapolis? He said, this, the memorial. I said, excuse me? He said, well... I was visiting some friends in Los Angeles and a friend of mine had a business trip to Minneapolis and I asked if I could tag along because I wanted to see the memorial. And that story sat with me because it made me realize that people are coming to Minneapolis to see what the people built. People are coming to Minneapolis to bear witness to the protest uh, against injustice, against the stolen lives um, I think that it is a wonder that the memorial still exists in the streets, defies all city code. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a greenhouse in the middle of the street. There's five, 10 to 12 foot fists in the middle of the street. There's gardens in the middle of the street. Uh, nothing is to code. And, um, but everything is in pursuit of justice and, and it's understood. So even in engaging with representatives of the city of Minneapolis, there is this common understanding that there is something special about this intersection that, that no one can deny. I think the, the greater questions then become is how do we hold this story appropriately for the impact that it is having internationally and how do we hold the story appropriately for the impact that it has locally that creates several challenges to sustain an eighth wonder of the world <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but I'm, it's it's important i have a question mm -hmm. um it's been something i've lived i'm a longtime resident of the twin cities and one of the things that i think i've been most um sort of tried to be re like respectful of and um, and try to hold space for is when something like this happens, there are people who will come to the space that will come to see it, that will come to be a part of it, that will come to be a part of collective action or just collective emotion and energy. But over time, that energy can shift. Um, how are or do you have any concern about the energy shifting from this place of not just healing, but of um, the 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 ability, as the clip said, to pilgrim here um, versus it turning into 
or people trying to make it into more of a tourist attraction. So what we did at the, at the George Floyd Global Memorial is design a, a pilgrimage program. Uh, we contracted uh, or we, we brought on uh, seven community members um, who were also in need of, of economic opportunity. And we helped them start their own businesses. And then we contracted their businesses to host pilgrimage journeys. Um, and so we... Um, as people come to us and say, I want to visit George Floyd Square, whether they are a conference or a family or a church or uh, just uh, people who are traveling through, uh, we can connect them with a pilgrimage guide. And not only is it an opportunity for them to tell their own stories of being community members who lived in this neighborhood before it was George Floyd Square, right? When it was still 38th in Chicago and the stories that undergird, that built the history of the space, um, they can tell those stories and they can tell the stories of the protests so that people don't uh, fill in with their own imaginations what is not there. And so that's important for us to have the integrity of the story. But I found that what my pilgrimage guides do is extremely profound in that they're constantly challenging people to think of the stories in their own neighborhoods. We know that they cannot go back and recreate a George Floyd Square in their own neighborhood, but they can go back and be inspired by what our neighborhood did and by what our community did and figure out what does a stand for justice look like in their community. Um, George Floyd Square was built by the people. The memorial is the memorial that the people built. And it is powerful and profound to see what can happen when people come together with a common vision for justice. And that pilgrimage program is an invitation for people to explore what we are doing and hearing from the voices of the people themselves. I love that. I think that's amazing. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the intro, George Floyd Memorial, the George Floyd Global Memorial, has taken in more than 5,000 pieces of art, protest signs, and gifts from people around the world. Um, what are some of your favorite pieces? Um, and what are some of the parts of the collection that really resonate with you? People ask me that, and I really do hate to say a favorite, because <laughs> I'm always up. There's just too many of them, you know. The other day, <clears throat> from the latest exhibit, <clears throat> um, Voices of the Unheard that we have out there now, mm -hmm. exhibit that we have, I, I just saw another one I like. And I said, oh, my goodness. I, I just. I know, that's it, a tough question. It, it, it's hard it, to ask someone to choose. It's a tough one yeah. for me. Yeah. Miss Paris, do you have anything that particularly strikes you? I, I could answer, but I want to hear your, your perspective first. <laughs> you know, I, I have seen, um, like several, um, like letters and pictures that are drawn by looks like children. And I think that is, is so touching to see that children realize that something happened that was so awful. And, you know, they, they can see that and they feel it. And 
you know, they're able to actually teach us in ways that this isn't right. Why, why would George Floyd be treated that way? Mm-hmm. And so they'll, you know, show their work and it's, it's just so touching to see, especially coming from children. Yeah. And I, to, to add to that, um, what I found in doing the exhibits that we put on, because our, our goal is not to just keep them in storage. Our goal is to get them back out to the people. So uh, our first exhibit was at Chicago Avenue Fire Arts Center, uh, followed by Orchestra Hall. We did one at the Pillsbury House and Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, an, another exhibit at uh, Chicago Avenue, Avenue Fire Arts Center. We did one at Methodist Hospital. We're going to Central Library. Um, Arizona State University is another institution that's going to receive an exhibit. And so um, what I have found, though, in this process is that we could take the exact same pieces. And as we engage within the community that we are going to, to, to have them help us figure out how the exhibit should be organized um, and how the story should be lifted up. Um, it creates new stories with the voices of the people. Uh, and so I, I get to come to each piece from a different point of view because other people have looked at it and attached their feelings and their emotions and their thoughts just by merely lifting up this piece and saying, this piece has to be in the next exhibit. Um, with that said, uh, one of the most profound pieces that I think we have in the collection is on cardboard, because so many pieces are on cardboard, mm-hmm. um, and it has these bright and brilliant colors that says, this is our collective PTSD. Yes, that is. And I think mm-hmm. that piece spoke to me so much because um, when we think about the pain that we have gone through as a people, when we think about uh, the history and the generations of, of resistance and movement, um, when we think about the fact that uh, we are merely carrying on the, the banner from where our ancestors uh, left off, um, we recognize that it is a collective PTSD both in time and throughout time. And it's such a prophetic piece, but it also beckons us to ponder, well, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to navigate the trauma? How it's not just an individual thing. If, if the pain and the trauma came to us collectively, then the healing must also be collectively as well. Um, so it provides a challenge in that. Um, but I also agree with Miss Angela that no piece is more important or valuable than another piece. Because <laughs> I know I'm going to hear. Did you say? <laughs> yeah, you didn't say mine. Didn't say yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah, which absolutely. is also why we say that everything is somebody's offering. Yes. Um, because we, we, whether it was done by a two-year-old or a professional artist, um, every piece has value um, in the collection of offerings. Mm-hmm. I think that's really beautiful. Um, I, and I really appreciate that the way you have held um, the what people want to offer and what they want to bring as an offering. I, I think it just makes it so much more open and welcoming for anyone who wants to participate. Um, now, 
For the third year in a row, you've organized the Rise and Remember event series, and that's happening from May 25th to the 27th. Uh, Janelle, can you tell us what's happening this year? Oh, so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I I first have to say, Rise and Remember came about in a sideways way. So during the first anniversary, if people remember the the trial for Derek Chauvin was like right before that. Mm -hmm. And that was a big deal. And so many people wanted to be a part of the anniversary. Mm -hmm. We had started holding collective meetings with organizers. But then there was other organizations who wanted to do um, events as well. And um, some folks wanted to do parades. Some people wanted to do concerts. And then Mm -hmm. some people wanted to bring in politicians. And um, it was getting a bit much. It was getting Mm -hmm. to be a bit much. And I think Miss Angela just kind of put her foot down and was like nope nope guys we're just we're just we have to take a step back like if all we do is like grill hot dogs that's that's what we're going to do um and and that left us like six weeks to figure out six weeks yeah to figure out what we were going to do for the anniversary um and we brought on maya washington Mm -hmm. um as a friend a community member um, and someone with a passion to support us in this work. Mm-hmm. And she helped us create a one-day festival um, that would allow us to remember not only the victims of police violence, not only their families, um, but also the people and what the people did to rise up, like to remember the mutual aid, to remember the art and the dance and the song, to remember the streets, to mm-hmm. remember what we did um, and celebrate that. And I think Miss Angela was the one who said, no, we need a celebration. Like, uh, we can't have it somber. We've had enough somberness. <laughs> um, and so we, we decided to create a celebration with a candlelight vigil at the end. Um, year two. Uh, May 25th fell on a Wednesday and uh, by Miss Angela's request, she said, we have to do something on the 25th. And I was like, but the 25th is a Wednesday. <laughs> Who's going to show up? And so we decided that the candlelight vigil would still be held on the 25th to honor the actual day of George Floyd's death. And we would hold the festival on that Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then we had to fill in Thursday and Friday. And so, and so that's how the gay, gala came about. Um, and we also did a night of honor last year to honor the protesters um, who had been standing up for our all impacted yes. families. Um, so this year came around and we said, okay, how, how are we going to hold this space this weekend? And uh, we decided to add a conference. Um, because we had nothing better to do than to just <laughs> add more work. Um, so we have a candlelight vigil the evening of May 25th. We have a conference taking place um, at Best Buy headquarters uh, May 25th and May 26th during the daytime. Mm. Our gala is uh, Friday evening at Paisley Park. And then Saturday will be the street festival from 1 to 7 p.m. at George Floyd Square. Um, and so we have collaborated with so many different community partners, so many different voices. We have uh, Ndaba Mandela coming uh, from South Africa to speak at the gala. Uh, we have members of Sounds of Blackness who will be performing as well. Yes. Yes. We yes. have um, k- keynote speakers at the conference who are going to be 
out of this world phenomenal. We also added uh, what are called Perry Talks instead of TED Talks. Uh, for people who are community members who've been doing the work, who've been pursuing justice in their own way and having an opportunity to be able to tell their stories of what they are doing and how they are doing it. Uh, because we really want to lift up the community. Um, we want to lift up the work that we have been doing and that we are doing to get us all to the other side of justice. Well, that sounds like an incredible lineup of activities and events. And I, I would hope that many more community members come out and get engaged with what you're doing and engage with the work. Um, in the last moments that we have, um, I'd really like to ask, um, what do you want people to be thinking about this year as they mark the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder? Mm. That's a tough question, but it's a very, very good question. I think this year, you know, the last three years, we've been carrying so much burden, you know, caring for each other. And I think this year, what I would like to see people do, instead of carrying all this burden that we've been doing and going through trauma, is to help us through all what we've been through, the lessons and the experiences, especially the lessons of, of trauma, that we can learn how to to do that. Because I think that will lighten some of the things and, and the pain. Because what I'm finding out is that, you know, trauma is, is, is hard. But what can I learn with it? How can I cope with it better? What can I do? Um, how can I not be afraid to reach out for help? Because we got to get there, you know. We're all going through trauma, you know, sometimes it can last for so long, but we have to implement it in our mental health. How can we learn the lessons of the, of, of, of the last three years, the lessons of trauma, you know, the resources that can help us because so, so we can, it can lighten us up. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Paris, what would you like to say? This year, well, let's see. last year we our theme was um, we will heal us, um, and this year it's Ubuntu, um, and that is I am because we are is what that means, and I think that we have to come together collectively, and. Um, just show more love, um, mm -hmm. show more humanity towards each other. Um, there's so much happening every single day that shows that there, there's so many issues underlying with people that, you know, we don't understand, but love conquers all and Wherever we are, in whatever state that we are in, um, we can all choose to love instead of hate. And that's, that's what I would want to see more, for people to take back to their area of life and just love on one another. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think we could say it any better than that. Mm-hmm. I really just don't think we could. Um, thank you all for giving your time and your thank energy. You. Thank you so much for coming in. And truly, thank you for the work that you continue to do in community. Um, I, I don't think there's enough gratitude we can extend for how big and open you have made your hearts to help make our world better. So thank you for spending your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Twyla Dang, filling in for Angela Davis. You've been listening to a conversation I had last week about the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the organization that formed as a response to the massive and global outpouring of people grieving and demanding racial justice. My guests were Janelle Austin, the executive director and co-founder of the George Floyd Global Memorial, and she is the founder of Racial Agency Initiative. Angela Harrelson is the aunt of George Floyd and co-chair of the George Floyd Global Memorial. Last year, her book, Lift Your Voice, How My Nephew George Floyd's Murder Changed the World, was published. And Paris Stevens is the cousin of George Floyd and co-chair of the George Floyd Global Memorial. She has also worked in the mortgage industry for more than a decade. This conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.